Welcome to Cure Talks. I'm your host, Justin Dervis. My goal is to bring you closer to the men and women at the forefront of diagnosing, treating, and curing disease. Our first guest is Dr. Brian Helfand, a member of the team that created and implemented the genetic risk score for aggressive prostate cancer. As it stands, far too many men are diagnosed too late. The genetic risk score may change this. I'm on site with our guest, Dr. Brian Helfand. Uh, We are currently at North Shore University Health System at their research institutes. You're a board-certified urologist, MD-PhD. You've done internship, residency, and fellowships in general surgery and urology. You've also been involved with a couple other hospital systems. Anything else I'm missing there? No, that's that's it. I uh, am born and bred in Chicago. Always planned on leaving, but I think I'm stuck here, and I, I go between all the uh, healthcare systems and continue to interact there. So, some would call me the mutt of Chicago uh, in urology, at least. The first question is: How does your resume, your experience, actually translate to involvement with patient care? So it's amazing that we are now in the era of personalized medicine, where we use genetic testing to help guide our decision making. This is still even relatively in its infancy, but on a daily basis, continues to have increased utility uh, within the clinical setting. If you ask me if I would ever have been using in real time any genetic testing a decade ago, certainly 20 years ago, I would have said no way. And that was just because my two worlds uh, were separate. So when I started off training, I did an MD-PhD that was focused in on uh, molecular genetics. At that time, it was really basic science functions, but it was really giving me insight into how DNA interacts in cells, how it is important in it, and a driver changes in it are drivers for carcinogenesis. Slowly, that kind of progressed, and I finished my PhD and went, returned to the clinic, and I became really interested in urology, and particularly prostate cancer, and I had some great mentors. Dr. Bill Catalona, um, who continues to be one of my mentors, really kind of helped foster or marry that, those concepts of genetics into prostate cancer. And it was all at that time still on the research front. We were really trying to uncover some of the genetic basis of prostate cancer, and we were involved in many collaborations with companies uh, on one hand called Decode Genetics. We did a lot of work, but we also did a lot of work um, within families um, and a lot of kind of genetic studies where we were watching how the DNA was passed from generation to generation. But again, all on the experimental basis in the lab for the most part. And then we were able to kind of progress, and we've learned so much since that time that we realized that we should be using this information to kind of help guide our decision-making processes. Certainly when I left Northwestern and I came up here and, and really we started to see the era of personalized medicine, they looked to me and said, hey, you understand something about this DNA? Uh, you've done a lot of work. You love prostate cancer. How can we make this work and, and where do you see this going? So the opportunity kind of arose. And then coincidentally, a lot of uh, the technologies and data behind that were really reviewed and validated by not only our group, but groups throughout the world. And they really kind of helped force us to say, let's start using this in the clinic. So it was really a timing issue, but I think really worked out well. So you brought up 
decision making. And that is the ultimate point of it is to help make decisions. Correct. And in that process, a patient might hear a few phrases, screening, diagnosis, staging. They sound similar, but they're not quite the same thing. Can you help us understand what the difference is there and how genetics might interact with each of those stages or each of those processes? Right. So I like to think of everything uh, as a pyramid model to help describe that. So you have a period of time, the base of that model, where everyone is asymptomatic. So whether we're talking about prostate cancer or breast cancer or really any other disease for that matter, it is a population of you know, asymptomatic patients. And when we use a test to help aid in uh, screening, we're trying to identify a group of those individuals who are at risk of having that disease that we're talking about. So in the world of prostate cancer, we take or historically used um, by itself a test called prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, which is very common, or at least known to most men, is that they get a blood test, it gives them a PSA value, and if that is high, we then would work you up further for if you, if you needed a biopsy for, to, to get diagnosed with prostate cancer. We go one step up in that pyramid to the actual biopsy, okay, or the actual tool to diagnose. For example, breast cancer, a mammogram, and if that's positive, if that's for screening, then the next step would be a biopsy to see if there's actually cancer there. This is still at a, usually at a period of time where most patients are asymptomatic. Once we diagnose you after that biopsy to get a little sample of that tissue, then you, that patient has that disease. Okay? And that's where then treatment decisions are made to say, hey, what is the best treatment option for you based on your type of cancer that they found in the biopsy? And at the top of the model is when you diagnose or find that that cancer has spread out and it's become advanced or metastatic. And that's uh, the area where I think is kind of too late. I think it's very important, but obviously for most cancers and most diseases in particular, the ideal time to really treat or, um, or help someone is before you ever let it get to that late stage event. Okay, And when you talk about personalized medicine or using genetics, most institutions to date are still focused on that top part of that pyramid when it's metastatic. If we look at your tumor DNA and we see that there's a certain signature there in your DNA, we will use a certain type of chemotherapy or drug to help treat that metastatic advanced disease. So that's the pharmacogenetic aspect of it. There is a pharmacogenetic component in the sense that uh, if you have certain mutations in your tumor, that you are more likely to be sensitive to certain drugs. Pharmacogenomics as a field is really referring to your sensitivity, your, your, your genetic basis that determines your sensitivity to certain drugs you get. It's similar, but this is based on tumor DNA and how it would respond to certain therapies. And again, when you talk about most of the big institutions that are focused in on cancer, MD Anderson, Memorial, et cetera, they're really focused currently on using personalized medicine in that space. I believe you need to use that information really at the base of that pyramid where we're starting to screen because I think we used to screen everyone the same. 
if you were a guy and you were over age 40, everyone would get a PSA. However, I think we now have the ability to say that if you have a genetic variation or a genetic mutation and you're more susceptible to that disease, you should potentially be screened earlier or more frequently so that we could diagnose you at earlier stages. Our model here is a little bit different than the traditional model. Is we're trying to use that genetic information at early time points for screening when patients are asymptomatic so that if they develop disease because they have that increased propensity, it's going to be at an earlier stage that's very treatable so they never get to the top of that pyramid. PSA is, like you said, a test that many men will be aware of. It's prostate-specific antigen. It's produced in the prostate, maybe a little bit in some other tissues around the body. The reason that it became of interest was that the tissue related to prostate cancer would go into overdrive and would produce more of the PSA. Is it more of the tissue producing the PSA? What's the relationship there? There is a relationship between tumor volume, aggressiveness, and PSA levels. One of the reasons why PSA has undergone such scrutiny is it's prostate-specific, meaning it's produced from the prostate, but it's not cancer-specific. So many other things that would cause the prostate cells to turn over or secrete that PSA can be related to non-cancer-causing things. For example, a large prostate, inflammation, infection, sexual activity, working out. You look at it the wrong way, we can get that PSA to rise. But generally, you know, trends over time give a, a much better story than just a single one-time value. So it's, in some respects, the velocity of change in PSA. There's some art form to it, which is why all of our guidelines say if you have an abnormal PSA, repeat it again to make sure that it is elevated. There are other newer tests out there. Again, these are not genetic tests, but there are other biomarkers you can measure in the blood, such as a prostate health index or a 4K score, which look at PSA, but they also evaluate other related PSA-type molecules, and based on the various levels or their relative levels to each other, can spit out a score and saying that if you were going to consider a biopsy, which would be the next step, what are the chances that you would find cancer there? And more importantly, what are the chances you would find an aggressive tumor there? So we are have moved the bar a little bit in that way, which certainly helps decrease the number of unnecessary biopsies. But we can even further hone that in by using some of those genetic testing. This discussion is interesting, but also personally applicable with my family. We have a pretty deep history of prostate cancer. My father has battled prostate cancer and come out on top. He went through a pretty extensive couple years of treatment and retreatment. And my uncle, who's in California, is currently in the process of doing everything he can to battle prostate cancer. Certainly, that has motivated me to look further into what I need to do. You know, hopefully any of our listeners who are familiar with family history, their own family histories, or are men of a certain age who need to, you know, have maybe haven't thought about screening 
maybe this will be a little motivator. <laughs> and that's the cool thing is that that you're, you know, someone who, yes, you have that risk because of your family history and you know that. OK. On the other hand is just because you have the family history doesn't mean that you inherited those parts. And so that's why that additional testing for you is really relevant. We know and we've looked at, you know, families who've had tons of prostate cancer, what we call hereditary prostate cancer families, and we have looked at the genetic risk score in those, and it's not surprising that that genetic risk score can modify that, uh, that effect of family history. So meaning that just because you have a family history, if you have a low genetic risk score, you're actually not at increased risk, even though the family history suggests that, hey, you are, and, and vice versa, if you have that family history and the higher genetic risk score or a mutation, yes, you are certainly at increased risk, and you would certainly benefit from more intensive screening. Well, maybe to take a quick step back, the prostate itself, many men may be aware of it. I don't know if all of our listeners will really know what the what prostate is, is. It's a small organ. It's connected directly to the bladder. In a lot of respects, it's the intersection between our urinary system and our reproductive system. But what is the function of the prostate? Uh, so it is a reproductive organ, also, as you said, a, considered a urinary organ. Its general size is about the size of an almond, but in some men can increase to big sizes, not related to cancer, uh, but related to benign growth. So it grows in every man over time. It sits at the bottom or the base of the bladder. And the tube that you pee out of goes through it, called the urethra. And at that point when it runs through it, the urethra, that tube, is intimate. It's part of that prostate. The prostate's normal function is really to make fluid for ejaculation. So you need it for reproduction because in order to make the sperm, which are made in the testicles, happy, you need the fluid from the prostate to keep them happy and healthy. After reproductive years... The prostate seems to do nothing good, uh, meaning that it, it usually either grows and causes urinary symptoms or it can get cancer. However, if we, we can treat those if they come up and are identified at early time points, both of those. So we are recognizing it. And, and when you talk to most guys as they age or you even just are in a public urinal and, and you hear the guy a few stalls over, you know, it's a little slower, it's likely related to the fact that he has an enlarged prostate. In our evolutionary history, that period after reproductive years didn't matter too much. <laughs> we so were eaten now, by the dinosaur. Yeah, right. <laughs> so all the things that are left are problematic more than helpful when it comes to <laughs> continuing our productivity as humans. Now, prostate cancer is very common. It's the most prevalent cancer, if I believe maybe there's a skin cancer. So skin cancer is the, the number one, but in guys, it's the uh, most common solid tumor that we know. And it affects in, in the United States, affects about one in seven men throughout their lifetime, or they, the chance of them being diagnosed throughout their lifetime is about one in seven. But if you look at the mortality, meaning the, the rate at which guys die from prostate cancer, it's significantly lower. So there is a significant discrepancy between the diagnosis and the overall death rate from prostate cancer. And a lot of that uh, relates to many things, some of which are that in general, prostate tumors can be very slow growing, even aggressive ones. But two is that the treatments for them are very good. And if diagnosed early, uh, meaning confined to that prostate, hasn't spread, it is very, very treatable. 
But as it turns out, there are aggressive and non-aggressive forms of prostate cancer. These days, the guidelines really suggest that men who have non-aggressive forms can consider actively watching the prostate cancer versus actively treating it with surgery or radiation because the chances of a non-aggressive tumor going on to spread is generally low. The issue there is that we're not great as clinicians, just because of the lack of available testing, to really distinguish between a truly non-aggressive indolent prostate cancer and an aggressive form. So there is still some, and and not even some, there's a lot of area there that we need to work on, but the genetics does give us some insight into that. Regarding that aggression of the tumor, I assume you take a biopsy, you take a look at it. What are you looking for to determine if it's more or less aggressive? So there is a, a scale that pathologists use. It's called the Gleason score. And that is still the best way that we know or have an idea of how aggressive a tumor is. So the Gleason score really evaluates on a scale of 3 to 5, and there's a reason why it starts at 3, but ultimately how aggressive or non-aggressive a tumor is. So when you look at it, um, cells that are cancer cells that are a little bit more well-formed have a score of 3. Those that have a that are really disorganized and look angry in the microscope um, will be a five, and four is intermediate. The Gleason score is a summation of the primary pattern they see when they look in the microscope and the secondary pattern, and they add them together. So the lowest you can get is a three plus three equals six. We call that non-aggressive. And the highest you can be is a 5 plus 5 equals 10. So our scale goes between 6 and 10. And based on that, you can say, hey, if it's toward 6, it's generally non-aggressive. 7, we call intermediate aggressive. And 8, 9, and 10 are more aggressive, uh, or we call high-risk aggressive tumors. The issue there is that our gold standard for diagnosis is a biopsy. It gets it right about 30 to 40% of the time. 30 to 40% of the time on a biopsy, we may miss cancer there because we're only sampling about one one thousandth of the prostate. And so we have to continue to follow you afterwards, make sure your PSA behaves. Otherwise, we would have to go back and re-biopsy you at some point. Similar, if you are diagnosed with prostate cancer, in general, the biopsy gets it right about 60 to 70% of the time in terms of Gleason score, uh, meaning that if you compare the Gleason score of a biopsy to the Gleason score, if you remove the entire prostate, what we call the final pathology, that's concordant or the same 60 to 70% of the time. However, 30 to 40% of the time, it's you miss something there, and that's where That sampling error, because we're, as I said, only sampling the high-yield areas of the prostate, meaning that most prostate tumors form in the outside part. So if your prostate's like an orange, it forms in the peel. The juicy part is more where just kind of benign growth, those urinary symptoms are derived from. So we're really sampling the peel. There are uh, newer ways that we can improve that technology. Uh, meaning by using prostate MRIs, what we call multi-parametric prostate MRIs, that we can uh, combine with ultrasounds to do fusion 
uh, images. So we would combine the ultrasound and the MRI, and we can do biopsies based on that. That has moved the bar and their accuracy a little bit, especially for high-grade tumors. So maybe a little more than randomly sampling a portion of the prostate you're targeting your sampling. You can target a little bit if there's a signal that lights up on the MRI based on the contrast. I mean, it's a whole science in itself. But so there are opportunities to definitely improve it, but we've made some progress there. For a patient, it is a fairly complicated clinical flow. You go from screening, so that's your family history, your personal history, your digital rectal exams, your PSA levels. Correct. And then if, if you have a high PSA level or an abnormal digital exam, then you consider a biopsy. Now, sometimes in the modern era, I always think that there's some additional testing you can do to make that decision to proceed with a biopsy easier or with a, more confidence. And then um, when you do the biopsy, and if you find cancer there, we, you have to understand its limitations, is that, you know, it's, it's definitely cancer, but there is a some degree of error based on the Gleason score, which is what we use to guide the treatment decision. So as you're already kind of seeing that up until now, there's a lot of errors built into every step of the way. It has a big impact on the decision you may ultimately make. Either you think you're healthy and happy, and you are, you may not be. Right. Uh, if you are diagnosed, you have to make the tough decision of which treatment path, watchful waiting. Right. So if you have a low-grade tumor and you're put on active surveillance where we'd actually watch you over time and re-biopsy you at certain intervals, that is really with the understanding that we think we got it right. We're going to biopsy you over time to make sure that we did get it right. But there is that possibility that maybe you do harbor a small aggressive tumor in there and we could miss it. On the other hand is there are guys who have seemingly aggressive tumors um, that we treat who ultimately when you take out their prostate or, or in some regard get more tissue, it actually was more indolent. So we, we are getting better over time, but that's where you know, newer tests that really can distinguish between non-aggressive and aggressive tumors are, are needed. You've referenced a genetic risk score, a genetic test that your group likes to use in the belief that it provides more information and potentially more useful information so to take one step back there, um, we have to understand what, how we can cur our current testing can estimate hereditary risk, okay? meaning that for diseases such as prostate cancer, which is considered to be one of the most heritable cancers, meaning passed down from generation to generation, or at least your risk is, how can we estimate that risk? That risk is estimated by three things. Number one is your family history. Okay, which is an independent factor. So if you have a father or a brother or an uncle who has prostate cancer, then your risk is higher than the general population just because of, of that fact alone. And there are genetic factors, that some of which we don't even know about yet, um, which are imparted just by that family history. However, we know that most people don't go to Thanksgiving and talk about their family history or, or Uncle Joe, who just was diagnosed from, that doesn't typically come up. It tends to be something people. you talk about after the fact. 
after the fact. And so it, it is not the most accurate way, uh, but certainly if someone does have that information, it definitely helps give us the clue to say, hey, that guy is at increased risk, generally considered about 1.5 fold higher than the general population, depending on the relative involved. And that person probably would benefit from earlier screening. And that's why all authoritative groups right now, such as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the American College of uh, Cancer Society, um, they all recommend earlier screening if you have a family history of the disease. But we have really started to move or complement that by using genetic testing. So the genetic test, which is just looking at the DNA that you're born with, it doesn't change throughout your lifetime. It is how you're born is, is how you die in that regard. And I always say you, you have to love your genome because it doesn't change. And so from there, we can estimate two different types of, of gene mutations, if you will. There are the what we call the high penetrance genes, um, which are very much like the breast cancer genes. So everyone is really familiar in breast cancer with genes called BRCA1, BRCA2, okay? And those genes, they are paid attention to a lot in breast cancer because they do impart increased risk of breast cancer, but also increased risk of lethal or, or kind of deadly forms of the disease. So everyone is very familiar with them. Um, and it turns out that prostate cancer has its own set of breast cancer-like genes, including BRCA1 and 2. So there are over 14 genes now, which we do know increase the risk or at least have been associated with increased risk of prostate cancer. Not all of them increase the risk of aggressive disease, but many of them do. And we currently know that genes such as BRCA1, BRCA2, another gene called ATM, HOXB13 do appear to increase your risk of aggressive tumors. Um, so it's really important to know those. But again, this category of, of genes are called high penetrant gene mutations. A lot of them tend to form in pathways that we call DNA repair, Okay, meaning that they help cells correct any kind of problems that they have as they replicate. Um, the other genetic information that we're interested in, as you just mentioned, are what we call a genetic risk score. Okay, And a genetic risk score is just our version of the test um, that looks at little kind of blips throughout everyone's DNA. So every uh, man will have certain little blips. Um, the technical term for these blips are called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And there are certain SNPs or blips that are associated with prostate cancer. There are other SNPs that are associated with cardiovascular disease, lung cancer. I mean, you name it, we have identified, um, and many other groups have not only identified, but also validated the findings that if you have a increased number of these variations, blips, then you have an increased risk of the disease. So the more of these blips that you have for any disease increases your risk, and the less of them you have, the decreased risk. And all this test that we have called genetic risk score does is it quantifies a number of blips and then puts them in relationship to the general population. So for prostate cancer, if you had a genetic risk score equal to 1, that would say that you have about a 1 in 7 chance of being diagnosed with prostate cancer throughout your lifetime. Which is on par with the Which average on, of the population. Exactly. But if you had a score of 2, 
that means that you would have twofold higher risk or about a one in three chance of being diagnosed throughout your lifetime. If you had a score of 0.5, you have half that risk or about a one in 14 chance. So based on that, it actually can give you a more quantified estimate of your risk being diagnosed with prostate cancer throughout your life. If you compare it to things like family history, much more accurate because family history is a one value. Every man with with a father who had prostate cancer has a 1.5-fold increased risk. The genetic risk score really stratifies that risk. And so that's why it's important because there are, are many men without a family history of prostate cancer, or at least a known family history, who are actually at high risk, who have scores, genetic risk scores of six and seven-fold higher. And you say, God, those guys are going to get prostate cancer, they should be screened. And uh, that's where we think we can make that difference there is that we can identify a much larger population than given to us by family history by using the genetic risk score and also those high penetrance gene mutations. How was the risk score developed? Uh, We are lucky here at North Shore that We recruited one of the world's experts in uh, risk scores and and the identification of most variants related to prostate cancer. The guy's name is Jinfeng Zhu, and he is not only a uh, close friend, but obviously collaborator through all this. And now he was able to identify that saying, hey, the little blips seem to act together, and you can, based on that, estimate a cumulative risk based on the presence or absence of, of these uh, SNPs. So uh, he really uh, helped develop it. There are other versions of the test that have been proposed. In Europe, they've been proposing or using a polygenic risk score, or a PRS, um, which is very similar. It's just how the results are ultimately presented. But I I believe that everyone really across the world who's involved in prostate cancer and many other cancers is starting to consider to use these because they do really help guide in in certainly the screening, but even uh, influence the treatment decisions as well. So I imagine there's a pretty extensive clinical study. Many patients, I imagine, had to be involved in this to get enough information to, to make conclusions about this information. So each one of the SNPs, uh, little blips, have really been identified in huge, what we call genome-wide association studies, or GWAS. So any individual SNP was initially identified in studies that included thousands of men with prostate cancer and thousands of controls. There is a group um, led by a professor in Britain by the name of Roz Eels, who really has the largest cohort that is spans throughout the entire world, of prostate cancer patients and controls. The the group is called Practical, and they really have not only studied it, but validated all of these in huge numbers. Now, you know, hundreds of thousands of men with prostate cancer compared to controls. So based on that, I, I believe that we feel very comfortable that the test works and that it's ready for prime time. And there are even certain SNPs, patterns, or genetic risk scores that are more associated with aggressive disease. And that's why not only does that help for screening, but also helps for treatment decisions. The other genes, the high penetrance genes, are always being looked at. There have been many, many studies uh, throughout there. Our group, in collaboration with Johns Hopkins, Uh, and University of Michigan and now Utah have uh, really looked at 
how these high penetrant genes are associated with lethal cancer, those, that really aggressive form. And, and certainly that's where we can say comfortably now that if you have those uh, mutations within that certain subset of genes, which includes the BRCA1, 2, ATM, HOXB13, and, and even uh, CHECK2, that that is more increased risk of lethal cancer. So if you have a mutation there, you should probably consider not only more intensive screening, uh, but potentially more aggressive treatment if you're diagnosed early. In addition, we are also involved in what's called the IMPACT trial. This is a trial that's designed to look at guys who have mutations in those breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and 2. And the study design uh, suggests more frequent or earlier screening among those to show us that if you screen earlier, that you can identify guys at earlier stages that is very treatable. And that's really what the results have shown of the study, is that if you have that increased risk because of that mutation, if you screen that population earlier, you will find them more treatable stages. I have to say, IMPACT is one of the most efficient acronyms I've ever seen. It's a good one. Identification of men with a genetic predisposition to prostate cancer. That's actually what Probably the team that came up with that. (laughs) Regulation is a significant burden, but also a significant tool in developing effective tools, whether it's diagnostics, screening, medical devices, therapeutics. In terms of the regulatory process... How has the genetic risk score progressed? Is it an internal tool that your team is using? Is it in front of the FDA? So we're not uh, going in front of the FDA yet. I mean, there are a lot of hoops, if you will, that have to be done before you would get to that process. And, And there's a question if a lot of that is even necessary in that regard. So a lot of the initial kind of clinical utility trials of that, meaning how effective the genetic risk score for prostate cancer, breast cancer is within a clinical setting, are being done and actually uh, are almost complete and have been performed at this institution. And the early results really suggest that it has a lot of utility. It has influences the screening practices. Patients understand it. Patients uh, want it. Patients benefit from it because if they have higher scores, they're more likely to get screened. And if you look at the rates of diagnosis, again, they are also more likely to be diagnosed. Overwhelmingly, if you, when patients receive that score, it doesn't cause increased anxiety. And when patients understand and are able to process that information and use it appropriately with the uh, help of their treating physician. Because of the desire to include this, we looked to many industry sponsors. We looked at many different of the leading genetic companies to partner with. Ultimately, we partnered with a company called Ambry Genetics, which is based in Laguna, California. And uh, they are considered to be one of the leaders and uh, main genetic testing companies. They are CLIA certified, meaning that they're approved uh, to do these type of tests. When you're out there, they say, if there was ever an earthquake in in California, that's probably the place you want to go and hide because all of their equipment is so well protected and and earthquake proof. But uh, they became really interested and approached us. Um, So we uh, ended up partnering with them to uh, use the genetic risk score. 
And so they will be offering as of March 2018, so just in two more months from now, a commercially available test that really incorporates those high penetrance genes, so it's sequences for those BRCA1 and that 14G panel, plus the genetic risk score for prostate cancer. It'll also be available for similar, similar panels for breast cancer and as we move forward for many other disease states um, that we can estimate that with. I'm very excited because it's the first time that we are seeing a test that really, to go back years in my life, so to say, that went really from the identification bench side now to the bedside. So I think that this is cool. Um, the other thing is, is that with all of this kind of development and testing, we're really, while we, I work closely with the genetic counselors, a lot of this uh, and the implications for prostate cancer are really going on in the urology clinic. That's also a shift of paradigm because I'm able to take that information and apply it toward patient care as it relates to prostate cancer. And it is really unfair or, or foolish to think that a genetic counselor um, knows the details of prostate disease, screening, etc. But that's what I'm trained in. And so that's where I'm so excited right now because I finally have the ability to take a genetic test, some of which I you know, initially helped develop, and now I'm using that directly in clinic. They always have the support of the genetic counselors, which is really the historic way that things are done, but we're applying it more liberally um, to the general population, at least that, those in the urology clinic. I'm a patient. I come to you. And based on family history, based on other indicators, you decide it's the genetic risk score may be useful. How do you ask a patient if they would be interested in this? So um, it's a little challenging and it's not challenging because genetic testing is becoming so cheap. And so historically, um, you would have to meet certain criteria based on your family history, which I think is ironic in the situation, to get genetic testing, any genetic testing, whether you're talking about the high penetrance genes or even the, you know, kind of genetic risk score. As it turns out, when you look at the data, 60% of men and women, for that matter, actually have a negative family history, but may harbor a mutation or a higher genetic risk score. And that's where, when I talk to my patients, I say, you know, we have these newer tests. They're a lot more accurate in determining your risk, and it helps influence our treatment decisions. Are you interested in obtaining the test? And, and we go through kind of the details of what the test is and and the possible but minimal, uh, you know, insurance downsides to any genetic testing, which are very, very minimal and mostly theoretical. But having said that is, if they want it and they don't qualify it, they can pay out-of-pocket. That out-of-pocket cost, depending on the company, as I said, is coming down. It's anywhere now, depends on which company you use and what it is and if it includes a genetic risk score, but anywhere going between $200 to uh, $400. So it's becoming more and more affordable. And again, it's one of those where I, I believe that, hey, almost this information you should know at birth, and then you can kind of help screen along the way. When you compare that cost to the overall cost of so many healthcare tests, so many other tests, PSA, et cetera, it's a spit in the, in the bucket. And that price isn't bad when you consider most people's deductibles are far more than that. So. Far <laughs> more than that. Far, so, so that's where I, I think uh, that's becoming increasingly attractive to most patients is to say, I, I don't even care about insurance, I'll just pay out of pocket. 
We're going to have further conversations in this series on the technology used for gene sequencing and analysis, conversations about its use in pharmacogenetics, even down to gene therapies, which there's been some publicity about. I think that this is one of the more directly applicable discussions that most people will encounter, though. So I I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. I had a great time. Thank you for joining us at Cure Talks. If you enjoyed this discussion, please provide a review and share among others. We truly appreciate it.